0: listeners, I'm Ty Spells, Senior Strategist at Stand Together Foundation and one of your hosts for the Stand Together podcast. Every time you hear my voice, we'll be connecting with remarkable people who will help us gain some perspective. In this episode type, Perspectives, we'll meet some inspiring friends who will help us ground our paradigms and principles in the complexity of human experience. Today, I get to have a wonderful conversation with Kaylee Jones. Kaylee serves as the program manager at Colorado Springs, Phoenix. Kaylee is so phenomenal and such a survivor who understands the journey of navigating addiction, but walking in joy and pride in our sobriety. Hello, Kaylee. How are you doing?
1: Hi, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me with you today.
0: I'm so excited that you are here with us today in our episode of perspectives. I always try to start with where we are now, what's going on in your life now. So can you share with me like where are you at and what's been going on with you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, these last two years have been almost redefining in my recovery in many ways. Um, I turned 31 today. Oh,
0: happy birthday. Thank
1: you. And then on the 4th, I celebrated 12 years of sobriety. And there's something about hitting um, a decade milestone Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. really, like, invited some, like, maybe I'll call it juicy growth.
0: Do you know what I mean? juicy growth. I'm here for this.
1: So... I think um, what I've been doing is I've been leaning into motherhood. I became a mom uh, in November of 2020 and just uncovering some of the lessons that come with bringing another human being into the world. And that's like offered me some perspective on my recovery I think I didn't have before. So I've really been diving into some of those conversations with my husband and with, uh, you know, my friends at Phoenix and my therapist and the whole, you know, network and continuum of care that has blossomed around
0: me in my mm-hmm.
1: my 12 years of sobriety. And so what I've been doing lately is, is trying to grow up, I think. <laughs> get, get,
0: get. <laughs> grow up and raise a human all at the same time. Yeah, doing the thing. <laughs> what would you say are some of those like one or two key Things that you've kind of drawn that you feel like has impacted your sobriety from motherhood and navigating that. What are those one or two things that you feel like you've been wrestling with?
1: Yeah, I think um, it's redefined what community really means. When I first got sober, you know, I'd go to the late night meetings at like 930 and then we'd find whatever restaurant was open and be there until midnight. And Mm just um, it was really, really clinging, I think to whoever and however I could possibly stay away from drinks and drugs Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and now um, I think that community has taken this new meaning of like how can I ask someone to help me Mm -hmm. cook a nutritious meal because I'm like tapped you know or how can I reach out to someone and say my son is like maybe teething I don't know can you tell me what's going on or Oh my gosh, my son started to walk. Can I bring him to the gym so you can celebrate with me? Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I think um the big the big lesson has been um community is a timeless experience through every season of life and one that shouldn't be missed.
0: Mhm. Oh, that's awesome. That's beautiful. I feel like it's so funny you say that. I feel like I struggle with those same things as far as like, huh. I should ask for help or I should slow down or to your same breath, like is this braggadocious or should I share in my celebration because the people that around me care about me and want me to feel strong and encouraged in my day to day. So I think that's beautiful that you're able to like pull those pieces out. Do you feel like you in the past have struggled with that before you were even navigating motherhood or every aspect? Like what part of you first realized, Hmm. I need to start asking for help or I should walk in celebration. Has that always been a struggle?
1: Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. I mean, I think that it was the hallmark of my drinking and using, right, of like being in the depths of despair and Mm -hmm. just, you know, in trap houses doing stuff I shouldn't have been doing and knowing it, but not feeling like I knew where to reach out Mm. and not knowing like even what words to use to say like I'm in trouble Right. You know, I need help. I couldn't, I couldn't ever muster that. Um, and then I think when help was introduced to me, um, and I was, I don't want to use the word forced cause that seems really intense, but I was strongly encouraged Perched and motivated. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, it was pointed out to me that like, I wasn't going to be able to do this alone. Mm-hmm. You know, like I wasn't going to be able to just you know, pull myself up by my bootstraps and move on with my life. You know, I was going to need the love and compassion of people who had been there before. Um, And now I think that just continues to evolve, right? So, like, that was maybe my first inclination of uh, accepting the hand that was offered.
0: Mm -hmm. And -hmm. now
1: the next evolution of that is, like, raising my hand.
0: Can you start with the beginning for me? Like, what was that like? How did we get here? How did we start this journey?
1: Yeah, I think... um, as I am going through this growth process now,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'm really finding out that the addiction process started longer than I longer before than I realized. I grew up in a family that uh was experiencing a lot of different um traumas and and violence and you know, I have a lot of recollections of a lack of compassion, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think I'm finding now that some of those adverse childhood experiences likely fed into some of the tendencies that was a breeding ground Mm. for addiction, right? So where it really began for me, I had experienced a sexual assault when I was 10, and I think that—I don't want to say that was to blame, Mm -hmm. right, but I think that it really kind of— shook the foundation of the little identity that I was just beginning to build. Mm-hmm. And um, when I explained to someone what had happened, the response was, well, that's just how little girls grow up. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I fell into this idea, right, that my life experience wasn't for me, mm-hmm. right? And so um, as I tried to, like, put back the pieces mm-hmm. of um what I thought and how I viewed the world and understood safety and security. That all kind of got fractured and you know then more life happened as life does. And um I had my first drink when I was maybe like twelve or thirteen. Um I really did not enjoy that experience. I was like, this is too out of control. Um (laughs) you know, I, I wasn't wasn't feeling it. I'd been a competitive gymnast this whole time and, you know, loved my team, felt really supported and challenged and all the things. And then at 14, I um, stepped away from gymnastics. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, there was this like loss of community. There was a loss of identity. There was a loss of um, an outlet, right? you know, for all of the experiences that I really didn't have words for. And um, that, that same time I transitioned into high school and um, my sister became pregnant. She was 17. And so like all of the little pieces that felt like there should be some congruency started to shift even more. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't really have the tools, right? Like I didn't have the words or the proper modalities around me.
0: Right. And last time you tried to share something, right. it didn't go well. Right. So and- now you're in more pain. Yeah. But you're trying to figure out the next step. So what did that look like?
1: So for me, the next step was to, like, try to make friends, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm like, I can't can't be in high school without any friends. I was the weird kid in junior high wearing my leotard to school. Like, I needed to get my act together. Um, (laughs) And so I was very academically inclined. And uh, that kind of was going to be my in, Mm -hmm. right? Like. I'm going to make friends because I'm smart.
0: Yeah, Um, Sounds great for high school. That's really how it works. (laughs) People totally want to talk about
1: school when they're at school. (laughs) Yes. Um, But anyways, I found these, you know, at the time, what I perceived to be really wonderful human beings. And I think in many ways they were, right? Like they were walking their own traumas at that time. um, But they were great people. And so I offered to write their papers for school. mm -hmm. And they were obliged. And they thought that was great. and, And, you know, they got good grades. And they offered to pay me. And I was like, oh. Look at this! Like I could make a living. This will be great. And um, you know, we're fourteen. Like they don't have jobs. They don't have they don't have cash to pay me. They had marijuana, so I smoked weed with them the first time. And I was like, "Oh, okay." Like, Mm -hmm. don't really love this experience either. But you know, I'm here. And um, the most powerful thing happened when I left. They invited me back, and I thought, "Oh my gosh! Like, I'm needed. I'm Mm -hmm. wanted. I'm Mm -hmm. valuable." right? I have worth. Uh, so I came back and wrote another paper for them and they said, Hey, um, we don't have any weed, but we could pay you with Oxycontin. And I was like, I don't really know what that is. What what would that feel like? And I'll never forget. They said, Kaylee, it's going to make doing nothing feel amazing. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's what I've been needing. Mm -hmm. I have been Manically trying to be the best gymnast, the best student, the best daughter, the best sister, the best whatever I have to be. Like I've just um, lived in this perpetual state of attempting to attain some level of perfection and every outlet that I have. And, you know, I'm human, I'll fall short. And I just, um, doing nothing and feeling amazing. And I was like, let's try that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that was the moment that I was like, oh, this is what people feel like in normal life. Like this is what people who, you know, haven't had the experiences that I have feel. They feel peace. Mm. And I I never felt that. And so I became, I think in that moment, abandoned to whatever it was going to take to stay high. And, and so. what age was that? I was 14. Hmm. And so I, um, I went back again, of course, and was like, look, I will write all your papers, I will do whatever you need me to do for the rest of the year to help you pass if I can have two. And it was just that fast. You know, it was like smoked weed one day, two days later did Oxycontin. The next day it was like, I will do whatever it takes if I can have another. Um, so I spent the rest of my high school career chasing that same feeling of peace and belonging and acceptance that I had held for a short period of time, mm-hmm. you know, in an afternoon in the summer.
0: And how are you showing up to your family or friends? What did that look like your day-to-day? How are you performing?
1: Yeah, at first, I think it was, uh, I held it together pretty well, right? (laughs) You know, like at first, I was like coming home super happy and like telling my mom I had friends. And I still, I graduated with a 3.98 GPA Mm -hmm. and um, I held a part-time job at an Alzheimer's care unit the whole time I was in high school. Towards the end, my friends started to die. They started to overdose, and, um, yeah, that's when I probably stopped showing up well, and I think that that's when I um, really started thinking, like, that would never happen to me. I'm going to manage better, and that's probably when I stopped managing.
0: (laughs) Better. Yeah, Mm -hmm.
1: right, and uh, people were going to jail, and it it was—we were all spiraling. Mm -hmm. You know, we were all a bunch of hurting individuals— trying to like cling on to each other as life rafts but we were all just you know broken
0: so at what stage did you know you had a problem
1: that's so funny you ask um i don't think i ever knew there was one what i call god shot moment where i was like this might not be right um i had started doing some dealing for our local cartel and um, I was bilingual, so mm-hmm. I have a perfect driving record, and I'm, you know, a five foot two blonde like white female. girl, right?
0: Like, <laughs> like you're totally set up. I
1: was totally set up to be like the to flourish, right? I see. Right, mm-hmm. and I mean, I think I have an entrepreneurial spirit. <laughs> <It's> like clearly, <laughs> wanted to run a business. Um, <laughs> so I I was doing a deal, and the way that works is a, a vehicle pulls up, you drive in behind them, someone hops out, gets in that dealer's vehicle and then they drive for a minute so it's inconspicuous mm-hmm. and during that time that i was in the vehicle it was this uh beat up toyota corolla that smelled i don't know not it smelled like sickness mm-hmm. do you know what i mean and there were two people in the front and two people in the back and they put me in the middle seat in between the two gentlemen in the back and um i remember they looked at me and they said where why are you doing this to yourself? Hmm. And I thought, why do you care? Like, I'm making you money. Mm -hmm. Right. But in the back of my mind, there was this like, when the drug dealers are asking you why you're doing this to yourself. We might have a problem. We
0: might have a problem. Like if the cartel is asking you clarifying questions.
1: Right. And, um, I brushed it off, right? Mm -hmm. Like I was making good money and I was living this dream that I thought was going to like land me on a beach in Mexico with a mansion. Like I don't, You know, full flight from reality. Mm -hmm. Had no idea that I was in a dangerous position. And so when I finally, my parents actually, um, it's so funny that we're here today. My parents did an intervention on September the 7th of 2010. Mm -hmm. So exactly 12 years ago today. And then
0: one, congratulations. Thank you. How did that intervention go for you? Yeah. What was that like?
1: It was like probably not my uh, most beautiful moment of existence. My, you know, my whole family was there, my boyfriend's mother, because my boyfriend was in jail, um, my therapist, and the lady that cleaned my parents' house growing up. Everybody was there. And they read their letters to me, um, and they told me that I was going to die if I continued to do this. And they said things like, um, you know, we've we've tried to give you everything. Like, you Mm -hmm. have access to education, you have a safe home to go to bed, and you have, you know, a family that cares about you, You have these things, and and why? Why are we doing this? You got to stop. You got to get help. And um, the whole time I was licking my mint chocolate chip ice cream aggressively at them, you know. Mm -hmm. um, And I didn't want to be there, and I didn't believe them. And then the lady that uh, cleaned my parents' house was from El Salvador, and she came up and put her hand on my knee, and she said... Eha, you're going to die.
0: Mm.
1: And I believed her mm. and I had never believed anybody about the state of my addiction at that time. Uh, so naturally I freaked out. I ran out of the house. <laughs> I found a rock and I was in there like, you know, chain smoking cigarettes being like, okay, how am I going to get out of this? How am I going to get out of this? Um, the guy that I had been, uh, dealing with had gotten deported. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, okay, like, I gotta I gotta figure this out, right? Like I have to I gotta figure out how I'm gonna live. Like I'm not going to treatment. No way. No mm-hmm. way. And um I ran through the whole gamut in my head. I was like, okay, I can get a burner car from his cousin. I can get a burner phone. I could probably sleep on some people's couches. If worse comes to worse, like I'm not a terribly unattractive person, I could walk the streets of South Nevada oh. and I'll I'll be able to like get enough money to get by. Mm-hmm. Right. Um and I marched back into that house with the plan, like, I know what I'm going to do. And I looked at my mom and I said, yes, I'll go. And I'll never forget. I, like, put my hands over my mouth and was like, that is not what I meant to say. No, no, I don't want to. She was like, you said it. You're going. And they put me on a plane the next morning. Um, and my, mo- my mom was, like, on the plane with me, keeping me, like, in the aisle so that I couldn't, like, you know, right. sneak off. Was
0: that your first um, attempt at treatment or mm-hmm. have you did a treatment past?
1: No, that was my first one. And I I had attempted—I had gone to a 12-step meeting one time at the recommendation of my therapist. Um, and all I remember is I had really terrible carpet, and I just couldn't get past <laughs> Okay, I know. It's just ridiculous, but I was just sitting there. Um, and, you know, there was a person sharing about how unfair it was that they couldn't have a beer after mowing their lawn. And I thought, I don't want this for the rest of my mm. life. <laughs> this is not— it didn't make sobriety at that moment, you know, at 18 years old at that time. It did not look attractive.
0: Mm-hmm. Didn't seem appealing. Right. So now you go through treatment. Mm-hmm. After traditional treatment, what is life like when you walk back into everyday life?
1: Yeah, I think um, it was an interesting experience. So treatment itself, I don't think I really realized I had a problem until I was in treatment. Mm. And that was when I was like, whoa, I've landed in a... Who lands in rehab at 19, (laughs) you know? Um, And my best friend in treatment had overdosed and died on the phone with me while we were there. And um, that was when I was like, I drank and used like she did. And so I got really busy. I got busy doing all the suggestions um, of the treatment center. And the treatment center that I went to was very focused on helping people learn how to live life outside of treatment. Mm. So we did 12-step. We had group therapy, art therapy, equine therapy. But then we also went, like, paintballing and skydiving. And they had, like, talent shows where we had to, you know, got to learn how to sing and do stuff. And um, they took us to the movies, you know. I'd never been to the movies sober. Mm. In my like adolescence, you know, they took us to like cheesecake factory and I was like, how do you, how do you go through a meal without sneaking off into the bathroom to do a line? Exactly. Um, So they really like tried to set us up. So I left treatment being like, I have all the confidence in the world. Mm -hmm. I know what I'm going to do. I have done life sober before, right? Like I had, I had been in treatment for uh, nine months and one month following that I was in sober living. So 10 months in California and then I came back home to Colorado Springs. <laughs> and that was where I did all my drinking and using, all my friends. And I I felt like a raw nerve. Like, have you seen that movie, 127 Hours, where the guy gets his arm stuck in the rock okay. and he has to, like, saw his arm off? Uh-huh. That's what it felt like being sober back in Colorado Springs. It just was, like, so ugh, raw. Mm. And uh, so I freaked out and I started, like digging through all my makeup bags and my old jean pockets, like trying to find something that I had stashed that I could use because my intolerable existence hit me. Mm. And um, I couldn't find anything. My mom had done an excellent job of cleaning out, <laughs> cleaning out my closet. Uh, and so I went through my phone, right, and I'm trying to call the people that I used to use with, and they were all like, you need to be sober. Stop mm. calling me. Mm. And um, I had no idea what to do. I had no idea. So I did what my treatment center put in place, right? So I went to a 12-step meeting, and I sat down, and this girl that I used to use with was there. And I was like, okay, God, like, I know somebody. Oh, gosh, okay. And I'm sitting down, and I'm like, you know, shaky and sweaty. and like, I cannot, I don't know how I'm going to live. Like, I can't. I'm 19. What am I supposed to do for the next 70 years of my life? Right, right, right. You know? Um, And this guy walks in with this shirt that, says sober and giant red letters across his chest. And I was like mortified. Like, how could you be in public claiming that you have a problem? Mm -hmm. But he didn't have the air of somebody with a problem. Instead, he had this comfortability, this confidence, this security in his identity. And I thought maybe just maybe like I could do that someday.
0: Mm. Kaylee, that's a great place for us to take a break. And on the other side of this break, I want to learn a little bit more about you being back home. We are back with Kaylee Jones, my good friend. Um, before we went on break, you mentioned... This gentleman walks in with an air about him and the word sober. So how did you process that or what did that look like or what did that feel like?
1: Yeah, I think in the moment I was just flabbergasted. Like how could you wear your problem on your shirt, mm-hmm, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I was also intrigued because, I mean, even at at that point I was almost a year sober. I still didn't feel... Um, Like I was on solid footing Mm -hmm. in my sobriety. You know, it was just like a, you know, trying this thing out and trying to figure out how to do it. And in that moment, I wasn't sure I could. Mm -hmm. But the sober shirt maybe thought maybe, I don't know, maybe I could. Maybe I could do it.
0: Did you speak to him? Did you talk to him? I know you're there with your friend. How did you figure out what the sober shirt even represented?
1: Yeah, well, my friend knew him. And so he sat down next to her. And um, they were planning on going bowling after this 12-step meeting, um, and I'm a terrible bowler. (laughs) Like, it's embarrassing.
0: That's what Um, makes it good, though, (laughs) just so you know.
1: Right. (laughs) Um, But they invited me to go, and again, it was kind of like that feeling back when I very first got introduced to drugs of them inviting me back. Mm. It was like, oh my gosh, like... That elation of, um, I, I might have found some people who can help me, <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> who, can, mm-hmm. who can walk with me, you know? Uh, so I went bowling. I remember leaning over to my friend and I was like, girl, is he going to wear that shirt at the bowling alley? Like, that is public, public. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, I don't know. He always wears it, whatever. Um, so while we were bowling, um, we got to talking and I ended up giving him a ride home and I looked down at the clock and it was 11.58 and I was like, oh my gosh. I'm gonna have a year sober in two minutes. And he was like, well, you can't do that alone. And so um, we went to a Denny's, it was Uh the only place that was open. Uh, He bought me a cup of coffee and he told me about the Phoenix and he had been working as an instructor in Colorado Springs. And um, yeah, he told me about the camping and climbing and they did yoga and they had a group fitness class and it was all free. Mm-hmm. If you had forty-eight hours clean and sober, and I was like, <laughs> I got a year <laughs> finally, something I qualify for, right? Yes. Um, and I don't have to pay for because Lord knows I do not have any money left over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was, you know, walking out of treatment after spending every last dime on drugs, right? And uh, so um, I remember thinking, like, okay, like I I, I rock climbed in treatment, mm-hmm. um, so at least I'll know how to put the harness on right. <laughs>
0: Right, right, I might not know
1: anything else, but I can do that part. Um, So they were climbing at City Rock in downtown Colorado Springs. And I remember um, driving my old beat up car down there, finding a parking space and then sitting in my car and being like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Can I go in there? Can I can I I mean, do I really remember how to put a harness on? Like, what if he's not here and I don't know anybody? Mm. And, um, you know, what if like I just had all of these what if scenarios that. At the bottom line, what if I'm not good enough? Or what if I'm not accepted? Right. You know, like, what if my past has disqualified me Mm -hmm. from a future? Mm -hmm. So opening that door I probably was like a 15,000-pound door or something like that. And I I remember once I got in there, um, it was September, so it was hot outside. I opened the door, and the air conditioning hit me, and... It was bright and there was all these like, you know, if you've ever seen a rock climbing gym, it's like a spattering of colorful holds. And there were people all smiling and talking and laughing. And I'm over here like, don't you guys know how terrified I am? You know, Um, and I walk up to the front desk and I shakily say, I'm here for the Phoenix. And they were like, oh, my gosh, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Let me take you back. And, you know, it was the first time that I was in. A recovery setting where I wasn't a problem Mm. I was just a person Mm -hmm. and I had every worth and right to be there and um they weren't like oh you're with the phoenix Mm -hmm. they were like yes I'm so (laughs) glad you're here um and I thought that was the first moment that I was like maybe just maybe the rest of my life the rest of these 70 years or whatever I have is not going to be a fight Mm. And maybe it'll just
0: be joy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So now you have realized that, hey, maybe, just maybe, I could do this. Mm -hmm. I am not a problem. What do you do? What is your first day or moment of the Phoenix like?
1: So I harness up. um, I go through their introduction clinic. I meet a bunch of people. Then after my introduction clinic, they introduced me to even more people that were there. There were like 50 people there climbing with the Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And I was like... I can hang out with any of these people. Like, I immediately have this, like, group of people who are down to get my number. Right. And go climb or go to a meeting or get breakfast or, you know, help me find a job. Like, I was just plugged into a network of individuals who are like, let's do life.
0: Right. So it's kind of like, in essence, when you first started, when we think about high school, Mm -hmm. you finally like, hey, they invited me back. Let's do life. Then you realize, ugh. Maybe not the right best choice of the way to do life. But now you step into the Phoenix mm-hmm. and you found these individuals who are doing life and inviting you back yeah. in a healthy way.
1: Right, exactly. I think, you know, the first introduction around drugs, there was always that question of like, ooh, I probably shouldn't be doing this. You know, my mom told me to keep my nose clean and here I am right. snorting Oxycontin. Um, and then walking into Phoenix, it was like, yes. This is what I should be doing. Mm-hmm. This is great. Everyone feels great, and it was like I'm I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But more than that, I'm doing something that is soul filling mm. instead of soul degrading.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was like something you could walk in with a sense of pride. It sounds like yeah. So now you are kind of realizing I found my people. I find joy in that. What ended up happening with that relationship or friendship or group of individuals that kind of allowed you to stay on this journey with the Phoenix and yourself? Yeah.
1: Oh, I think it became like totally obsessed, both <laughs> with the Phoenix and with that guy in the silver shirt. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up marrying him in um, 2014. and Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, we had our first baby in 2020 together. Um, and those, those individuals that make up the family of the phoenix were the people at my wedding party. Mm-hmm. You know, they were the individuals after I brought, you know, my son into the world, the front door with food. You yeah. Know, they were the ones, they brought him a succulent. My son, they brought him a little succulent the oh. day he was born. And it was like three o'clock in the morning.
0: <laughs> I absolutely love that one, the gentleman who said you can't do your first year alone, also said you shouldn't do life alone. Yeah. And said, let's get married. I love I can't take it. It's too much for me. (laughs) Like, sobriety, a husband, it's just your joy happening right now. Yeah.
1: Well, and you know, the thing is, it's like, this is not a unique experience, right? Like, when we find sobriety and we are surrounded with people who are dedicated to us having access to a good life, Mm -hmm. we all get the joy. Mm -hmm. We -hmm. all get a form of a relationship that we are intended to have to feel full. We all get opportunity career-wise, like... I have yet to meet someone who has been introduced to recovery and to uh, a phoenix, you know, a tribe Mm -hmm. that didn't find enduring joy.
0: Mm. Now knowing that you have found that enduring joy, found individuals that are showing up the first day to make sure that you and your family feel supported in this new chapter of life, let's circle back like, what has that done to help you stay encouraged, to help you stay motivated, and as you prepare for this next chapter?
1: Yeah, well, sort of back to the beginning of the introduction, I started volunteering for the Phoenix, which, by the way, anyone can do anywhere, mm-hmm. which is great. Um, and I, I spent, I don't know, probably like 400 hour, 480 hours a year volunteering for the Phoenix. I worked in banking and insurance and went to Phoenix. That was my life. So in 2017, they asked me if I'd like to... Do it officially, mm-hmm. <laughs> like work for Phoenix. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, you all had no idea! I've been dying to do this. This is the, this is the dream, right? You know, to give give recovery back in the way that it was given to me." Um, so I've been officially working for the Phoenix since 2017, and um, I think that has created the new bedrock upon which my so- sober life has flourished. You know, I was six years sober when I started working for them. And um, in that time, right, I've seen thousands of people come in and, you know, set the drugs down and pick up a barbell or take the ankle monitor off and go for a run. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. What would you say is that the uniqueness or the difference that makes the Phoenix the Phoenix for that individual that might be navigating their what ifs in the car?
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's such a unique experience for each person, but I think the thread that ties all of the experience together um, is the sense of belonging, the like completely judgment-free place to walk in wherever you are. Like I'll never forget a woman walked into rock climbing and um, she was an RN and she had lost her license Um, because of using controlled substances that she had taken from the hospital. Mm -hmm. And um, she collapsed on the floor in the fetal position and just sobbed in the middle of a Phoenix event. And I sat down beside her, pulled her in and hugged her and said, why don't we go for a walk? And, um, you know, her daughter just celebrated being nine years old. She has over eight years of sobriety now. And has her RN license back and is practicing as a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner, you mm. know. And so I think the, the common thread there, right, is that come in, mm. open the door, even if you have to crawl, I'll crawl with you until mm-hmm. we can get to a chair. <laughs> and let's, let's do this. Like we can, we can walk in the journey Um, as far as we need to and as long as we need to, for you to have that moment of, I belong, I have arrived, and these people are going to catch me. I mean, literally, we're going to catch you rock climbing, and figuratively, we will hold sacred space for you to navigate what began your addiction and what will end it. Mm.
0: Kaylee, you shared that a woman walks into the Phoenix and she fell down in a fetal position and was crying. And you immediately met her where she was and said, I will walk alongside you in this journey. And I feel like for that, you were confirming and removing the stigma attached to what she was about to walk through. Can you reflect on how has removing that stigma helped you in your journey? And also, how do you feel like it will impact you in your role as a new mother?
1: Absolutely. I mean, stigma itself is so complex and affects all of us in such deep ways that when it was removed from me walking into the climbing gym and being welcomed by people who didn't know me but believed in my recovery, now I can come from that experience and offer my son belief in him and whatever he
0: goes for. Have you thought about or have you and your husband discuss when the time comes kind of sharing that full story? With your son, what has that conversation been?
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of inevitable, right? Like he comes to Phoenix with me. He goes to work with me. He's um, all of his, you know, pseudo uncles are Phoenix members and they're in and out of our house probably every day. (laughs) Um, And they're all like carrying the banner of a sober life is a good one, you know, it's a really good life. And so I think that those conversations, while they might not be like a sit down and here's what we did. Here's how we overcame it. And this is what we're doing now. Um, it is a lifestyle in which he is immersed in already, mm-hmm. You know, like he's gone to 12 step meetings with me. He has his own Phoenix T-shirt, you know, he's getting to start his life from a perspective of I'm allowed to heal from whatever happens to me.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I just want to say thank you for you sharing that I also think it is worth saying that not only does he understand what creating a space for healing but I think that you are shifting the next generation of how those view those that are navigating sobriety Um, with your son um, I believe and see that he will grow up to be a young man who will understand that one is not defined by their past actions or choices but they still walk in that um pride and joy based off of overcoming and in community so I really appreciate you doing the work for yourself creating that space for him but then also making our future as a world brighter through the love that you share with him so Kaylee I want to ask you something that kind of stems from my childhood and reflection my grandpa used to always say if you don't stand for something you'll fall for anything Mm -hmm. so what are you standing for today?
1: I'm standing for an unwavering belief in people, no matter what.
0: Kaylee, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for showing up to this conversation with such an open heart, walking in your truth and vulnerability, and also what you are doing to remove the stigma and to keep encouraging those as they're walking in their pride. Yes,
1: thank you so much for having me, and um, thanks for starting the conversation so we can all hear
0: The Stand Together Podcast is a product of the Stand Together Foundation. It is produced by Bittersweet Creative with executive producers Obieque Okoli, and Robert Winship. Editing, engineering, and sound design by Robert Winship. Our title track is Being Nostalgic by Flying. The Perspectives intro music is Knowledge is Power by Matt Large. Extra special thanks to producer Molly Ringel and Elgin Cato for their insights and miracles of coordination that made all of this possible. I'm Ty Spells, and from all of us here, we'll see you next week. things way too complex like it'd be stressful. oh I'm with you I'm like why Ty why <laughs> um <laughs> like if it could be done it's 15 steps do why better do you girl it? do better I'm like more words more words <laughs>